Hello to you and welcome to Mastering Success, hosted by yours truly, Brett D. Scott. Mastering Success is a platform for successful individuals to share their journey, inspire, and give hope to us all. Speaking about hope, if you're interested in reading my triple best-selling book, I Fly, a collaborative anthology of 20 authors sharing their stories of triumph through some very trying adversity, you'll find the link on this page or check Amazon to order. Without further ado, let us turn on the mic, turn up the speakers and listen to this next episode with anticipated excitement. And a very warm welcome to the next episode of Property Portfolio. And a warm welcome, Nigel. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thanks, Mark. How are you? You okay today? Great. Excellent. I'm really looking forward to what really is part two of our procurement series. Last week, we went into how to procure contractors and looking at the things you really need to understand to make sure you've got that risk assurance. And this week, we're going to be looking at something really important, and that's the the different types of procurement that you can enter into. That could be design and build. It could be traditional procurement methods. So we're going to do a bit of a deep dive for the next half an hour on that. And um, yeah, good morning to to everybody who's listening live uh, on our Wednesday webinar session. It's always great to see see people live, and of course, you can also subscribe to our Property Portfolio podcast. So we've seen many different types of procurement over the years, Nigel, haven't we? Whether we're building data centres, power stations, or or property developments, we, we certainly have. We certainly have, and uh, you know, we we know there's quite there's quite a few. There's different there's different methods of procurement, as we know. Um, I think what people would uh, most commonly hear about is probably design and build. You know, that could be a route. Um, it could, it, you know, it could be just a traditional kind of um you know full-on detailed design and procurement method it could be a cost plus there's all these different methods and and i think really mark it's um you know it's finding the horses for courses isn't it as they say just finding the best fit for what your out turns on but i think fully understanding the risks that that go around each of the uh, the selected methods really i think that's uh, very important I think you, you use the R word then, risk. I think that's so incredibly important. Um, just going back to, to our corporate life, I think there's a great example of, of how different types of procurement might, might work. Um, in order to procure something, you need to know what you want to buy, don't you? I mean, that's, that's pretty, pretty standard. Um, and then it's the level of detail that you want to procure at. Do you want to procure a house with a functional kitchen and a bathroom, or do you want to have it right down to the tiles, the colour of the grout, uh, and the the, the, the the specification reference for the for the kitchen units? Um, and the example we had um, going many years ago, it was a data centre, wasn't it, in Canary Wharf, and they called us on a Friday afternoon and said, "Look, guys, we've we've got a problem, Houston, we've got a problem." Um, we're running out of power, uh, we're running out of cooling capacity on the site, and the lights are about to go out. And anybody who knows anything about data centres will realise that's not an option, the light's going out. That's when credit card terminals start failing and banks can't, uh, can't trade any longer. So um, so we were, we were brought in on Sunday morning, wasn't it? We mm-hmm. turned up to meet their board on a Sunday morning, and they said, look, we, we actually barely know what the problem is. 
we just know we're running out of power and we can't call the data center. So we don't really know what the problem is. And we certainly don't know what the solution is. So how on earth can we procure the experts and bring the experts in? Um, Because it's not just a design appraisal we need to do. We actually need boots on the ground now solving problems as they come up. Um, So that was an interesting engagement, wasn't it? And and for us, that ended up being a cost-plus contract. It did, absolutely. And, you know, what a journey that was in terms of a a client as well. You know, we just by the approach um, was... Sometimes when you dive into these situations, Mark, and we've done it a few times, haven't we? We've done a lot of, a lot of trouble, troubleshooting over the years. And you, you kind of go into the situation, you immerse yourself in, but you have to kind of step back into first principles, don't you? Just really with a calm head, just sit down, understand where you are, where you need to be, and try and find the gap between. And that that was very much the situation that you referred to. There was, you know, literally the data center was failing, as we, even while we were having the meeting. You know, they, they were having um, data rooms that were overheating. It was starting to to make sh- the service shut down, all these sorts of things. So it was quite a, a crisis situation, really. And um, and fundamentally, the, the 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 data center itself, the infrastructure of the data center was lacking, um, and there were certain resilient elements that needed to be bolstered, really. So so that became the scope. You know, there's a very high level what they term an employer's requirement and that was quite clear help <laughs> please provide power please provide resilience so that was kind of the the employer's requirements and then we we worked back from that and um, you know got, got our professional team in to do lots of surveys all the way all the way around the data center lots of testing you know that enabled the data then to to bring us back to arguably the drawing board to enable the design then to procure from that point. So, so it was very much a case and it, gosh, I mean, we, we, we topped, you know, one to 200 people on that site at any one time. Um, you know, we brought all the team to site, you know, where the professional team were remote, wherever their offices were, we brought them to site and there was a kind of a secondment of people actually into the, the physical location. And we just felt that was the best way to, to be reactive and and be more efficient opposed to somebody having to travel in, you know, to, to deal with something. Definitely. I mean, it was all hands to the, to the pump. And the way the client contracted us, because there wasn't a scope of works, so we had to create one over the weeks and months to come. And they contracted us on the Monday morning on a cost plus basis. So that was, they agreed our overhead and they agreed our profit. So they agreed to pay all of our all of our team, you know, our, our expertise, our, our people. Um, we agreed a a profit number, and then they paid the cost of whatever it whatever it cost. If and we ended up putting it's about eighty million pounds in the end, wasn't it? I mean, it was a, it was. a substantial contract over two years that it evolved, but yep. it started off with that cost plus. Now, as as property developers listening to to this podcast. You're probably thinking, what has that got to do? Uh, well, it's all to do with risk management. Um, and hopefully you will never have that type of situation again. You'll never have that, that Houston, I've got a problem moment. Um, so when we're looking at procuring our developments, um, we're looking whether they're commercial to residential conversions or, or, or land new build developments. We're looking at different types of procurement that are acceptable to the bank, that identify risk, 
that our professional team, and I include the main contractor as part of our professional team. I've no idea why why people don't uh, refer to the main contractor as part of the professional team because they absolutely are. They add a huge amount of value uh, and mitigate and manage a lot of risk for us as well. We've got to think of our banking partners, um, the collateral warranties, the structural warranties, all these elements pulling together. Um, but in terms of the design, I guess it's how far you want to progress the design, and that's a factor of, of speed, isn't it? A factor of time. If you have time to engage your architectural team, your, your principal designer, to design the full specification, the full drawings, annotate everything, full bill of quantities to then give to, to the builder. The builder doesn't have to make any decisions. They just price exactly what they see. Um, or to the other extent, you might have a high-level performance specification, very high-level maybe planning drawings. Hmm. Then it's for them to make the assessment. Then you know it's it's a dishwasher, and they'll they'll price the dishwasher. So it's careful what you wish for there, really, on how detailed your performance specification goes. Mm, absolutely you know and I, I think it's fair to say more we we prefer the former i think we prefer to get down to the detail at the early stages and you know accepting that there's a compromise of time here you know for a, some of our projects we, we could be designing you know after getting the keys for a site let's say we could be designing for two to three months even three to four months you know in some cases and this is allowing the the architect, the mechanical, electrical designers, the structural people, the environmental, fire, you know, acoustic design, all to be um, evolved, if you like, to to get to a final design. And then at that point, you know, it's out to tender, isn't it? You know, and the contractors will come in, and as you say, you know, they'll they'll price what is in front of them. And if you're getting down to the detail of a, you know, an MK. 2747WHI socket, as in that's the that's the make and the, the part reference, they will price that for you and you know exactly what you're going to get. And there's, you know, from a contracting point of view, there's very little, uh, as we term, wriggle room to get out of the, the contract matters. You know, it, it's kind of, that's what you need to deliver. And when you finish, please bring the keys back. I know it doesn't always work like that in the real world, but, but that's the concept. If we look at the design and build route, I think that gets you know, that gets to the contractor a lot quicker because from a design team perspective, you know, we still got to create our employees' requirements. So it's, as, as you say, Mark, you know, we've still got to specify we want a kitchen and we want a dishwasher. We're probably not getting into the granular detail at this point, but then that becomes open to interpretation by the tendering parties. Well, I've provided you a dishwasher, you know, it may not have been what you expected it to be in terms of maybe the manufacturer or functionality, but nonetheless, I've, I've, I'm fully compliant because I've provided a dishwasher. So it is a little bit careful what you wish for uh, on a design and build point of view, but there's nothing wrong with that as, as long as, you know, you ask the right questions. You know, please tell me what dishwasher you're going to provide <laughs> as an example, you know, which might come out as part of that that tendering process. So it's, I, and, I, and I also think, um, you know, it's a shift. It's a shift of design responsibility as well. So, with the former method, you know, detailed design, clearly from a design point of view, in the main, and we'll talk about CDP in a minute, Mark, won't we? But, you know, in the main, you know, the design is kind of on us. It's on the, our design team. 
if you're just doing a performance specification and you're pushing that down into the contractor, the contractor's still got to do the design. So he's still got to employ the architect and the M&E consultant and the acoustic and environmental and, you know, do all this, this sort of activity, but within his package. So, so it's, it's always a question of, is it cheaper to do one way or the other? Well, I think, I think in our experience, you've still got to do it irrespective of what camp it's in. So, you know, that, that, that is a debate I'm sure that could go on for years, but, but from our point of view, we would rather get down to the detail and be very assured of the product that we're going to get. If you if you if you're not if you're not certain about the exact product you're going to get, you may well be disappointed, and then you may well invite quite a quite a healthy variation account, you know, through the contract. Which obviously that's a, a budget related matter, which needs to be considered. But um, yeah, these are the these are the choices. But it's. Courses for courses, situational, you know, impact and all those sorts of things just need to consider it as you're making that decision going into a contract. And making that decision right at the front end, because not all contractors will price on a design and build basis. It's a very specialist type of skill set for a, a contractor. So that will be part of your contractor selection. You determine your professional team. You then determine your method of procurement to suit um, and then your your your, your uh, professional main contractor um, uh, procurement and onboarding in due course. Uh, a, a real top tip for people doing commercial to residential conversions to help mitigate risk, and we do this a lot, particularly on the larger schemes. When you acquire a a commercial property, potentially it could have been uh, occupied uh, as a, an office or, or, or whatever uh, right up until the day they handed the keys over. So you've had very little time to do intrusive surveys. You know, it's still got raised floors, suspended ceilings. And um, so what we often do is, is issue a pre-works package. So as soon as we've got the key, as soon as we've got to legal completion, we've already got a strip out and demolition package already contracted. And we hand the key straight over to the demolition contractor. The site is then insured by them. Um, they've then got possession. Um, they've got all the safety and security aspects covered. Um, they will then, um, uh, under contract, they're, they're the principal contractor under CDM as well. And over the next few weeks or several months, they'll do the strip out. And as we say, during the strip out, that's when the building reveals itself. So if you've got in parallel, if you've got a design team for you know for a two or three month design period, um, they're continually visiting site. They're continually monitoring. They're looking at as the building reveals itself, as the strip out happens, making sure the design is tweaked. All aspects are covered. You bring the main contractors who are tendering, bring them to the site. They can actually physically see what they're what they're going to get, what they're going to get possession of. So everybody's pricing in risk. Everybody's designing in all the risk that they can see. So the risk levels reduce or the level of, of unknown risks reduce absolutely dramatically. Um, and that's a real top tip. That will, that will get you the closest price at, at contracting stage um, uh, and as close to the, the final account price as you want. And that's ultimately our, our option. Yeah, very much. It's a great, great point you make there, Mark. And, um, you know, I think, I think that approach also has peripheral benefits as well in terms of... Um, you know, delisting from the likes of business rates. 
So in, in order to put an application into D-List, you have to demonstrate as part of your application that you, you have engaged with a contractor and you are substantially through that process with photographs and all those sort of things. And, and clearly, you know, if, if, we, if we don't get somebody in to do the, you know, the strip out, notwithstanding the, the benefits that that provides to the design team, you know, as you say, looking at the skeleton of the building and any problems that may be within it. But, um, you know, if, if we don't do that, then obviously we, we can't provide that evidence and we could have a window of three to four months, you know, while we're waiting for the contractor, the main contractor to take possession before we can start delisting from business rates. And, and that process does not happen overnight either. So, you know, you could be two, three, four months down the line before that gets delisted. And in the interim, you'll have to pay the business rates for the building. So it has all sorts of benefits, you know, and I think that that is a top tip, certainly for today, you know, to to think about a kind of a two-stage approach of that initial strip out, for sure. Yeah. Um, there's also a, a another hybrid option of procurement that you might consider, and that's somewhere between design and build and traditional, where you are maybe uh, progressing your, maturing your design um, you're likely to go down the detailed specification and drawings route. So you're heading down that traditional route. But let's take a specialist area. Let's take foundations. Let's say, let's say it's, it requires um, some foundation engineering, maybe some piling, something like that. What you can do is you can allocate a, they're called CDPs, contractor design portions. It might be in the mechanical and electrical package could be in various aspects uh, of the package, but you can go detailed specification and drawings in certain areas and then highlight a certain contractor design portion. Mm. Um, so that's a bit of a hybrid. Again, when you're looking at contractor selection, it might be that the foundation engineering is, is really crucial just because of the type of site. So that might be an angle of, uh, that you'll focus on for your contractor selection. Contractors who have got great internal capacity or great relationships, partners who can bring to their foundation engineering. So contractor design portions, again, something to, to really focus on. Yeah, very much so. And another example of that is that we, we've seen um, is where our designers will design, let's say, you know, the electrical distribution system into a building. So they'll, the main distribution board, all the sub cables that run out to, you know, in our case, different apartments and flats. So they'll do all the design, they do all the calculation for routes and, you know, volt drop and all those sort of to, to physically size those cables. And then they'll, they'll terminate in terms of design their, their portion at the consumer unit within the apartment. And then the CDP it comes in and this is uh, to the electrical contractor and it's for him then to take on the design portion from the consumer unit in the flat to the final point so the lights the power the switches the sockets all these sort of things that they'll they'll do all the design make sure all the routing's correct or very compliant you know those sort of things and i think that's a great example and sometimes we do that also with the um the mechanical contractor as well don't we you know the plumber uh, who's putting all the pipes in? So he takes a responsibility, if you like, from from the connections of the boiler. So our designers will design everything up to the boiler, and then he will take the pipe work away, 
at the appropriate sizing to run around the apartment to make sure it hits a performance criteria. And it's it's a great point because it's very difficult for a designer on the desk to work out the routes, the actual physical available routes that he he can run pipe work and he can run cables and he can run this. And, you know, considering coordination of those services as well, very difficult for a designer to do that on the desk, opposed to when, you know, the plumbers, the electricians are on site, you know, with their respective engineers and they're, they're plotting out the routes in the physical environment, you know, it becomes a lot easier for them. So I think that's a very, very good, uh, good tip. Yeah. There may be scenarios where you've already engaged a professional team to do some form of design. And it could be your planning drawings, could be a little bit more detail to satisfy the planners. So you've already got a design team. Should you then want to go down the design and build route, you've got two types of design. You've got your initial design, which you've contracted, and then you've got the design allocation to your successful main design and build contractor. And what's really important in that is to make sure you've got that hard contractual link and stitch those together. So the word, the word that comes to mind here is the word novation. So it's a, a contractual word that enables you to take all the design work that's been done to date, however small or large, and novate that to the main contractor. So your main design and build contractor can then take responsibility for that. So there's no pointing fingers at the end of the contract if something has failed to say, well, I was relying on that information. No, you've got the information, you take responsibility for it. So remember the word novation. And any of our um, people on our 13 week program, uh, our commercial to residential and land development program, or any of our mentees will be aware of that word novation. And we talk at length um, in terms of how we structure these deals. And of course you can't structure these deals on your own. And we're not expecting you to, and, and we don't structure these uh, on our own. We do it with a great team. And all the elements of, of procurement, of contract, making sure we've got novations in place, all these aspects here, really important. You get a great commercial manager or QS. Uh, we use Jake Southers of your QS company. But just make sure you've got a fantastic quantity surveyor. Uh, who can help guide you through the procurement plan. You'll be doing this in conjunction with other members of your professional team, mainly your, your principal designer under CDM as well. So you're bringing this together and then you're standing on the shoulder of giants rather than trying to explain to the bank why they should trust you because you're going to try really hard on the project. You know, that doesn't wash here. It's about having a risk assurance structure. Absolutely, yeah. That's very, very important. And, uh, you know, in terms of the compliance, you know, after <clears throat> after construction, during construction as well, you know, to to ensure um, irrespective of the, the approach, just to make sure that the designers have have signed off. You know, there's a there's an audit, there's a, a quality assurance process so that they may well have put something on a drawing. We need a, a bit of steel work put in in you know, on the site of this size, that web thickness and, and so on and so forth, um, for the designers to go back and just just sign that off, almost to certify it, to say, that's my design, gone to the contractor, contractor's installed it, I agree it's been installed in the appropriate way, 
signed off and move that on. You know, it's. It, I think with all these engagements, it is for the life cycle, isn't it, of that construction phase for sure. You know, every nobody's dropping away, everybody's staying in because they've all got that responsibility all the way through to to ensure the finished product is as designed, essentially. So, yeah, that's regardless of whether it's a design and build or a, or a traditional approach. Yeah. And another area you might consider in your procurement and as your design matures um, is something called value engineering. Now, value engineering is a really important part of, of, um, of drawing together time, cost, and the final product. And Nigel mentioned that earlier on. We want to be clear at what product we're going to get. We may not be particularly concerned about some elements you know, we're, we're, that's that's more a, a, a cost reduction led, um, but there are some areas that we absolutely are going to be uh, uh, very keen on. So, for instance, if we're selling a, a unit, the uh, type of kitchen and particularly kitchen um, work surfaces, you know, they they can sell uh, an apartment or fail to sell a department uh, uh, an apartment if you get the specification wrong. So, there are certain areas we might focus on. Might be other areas not. So the value engineering period, and make sure again another top tip here. Make sure you've got a period of time, a, a week or so, in your program to go through the the main contractor and the architects uh, and the design team's uh, proposals, so that you can value engineer. And if you if you get this programmed into the schedule, so that all parties are aware, this is a crucial phase, and they come with options. So sometimes we'll we'll ask for the uh, you refer to it, Nigel, as the bronze, silver, and gold of of kitchens. Um, so don't just come to me with a kitchen and and then we say, well, what other options are there? Come to us proactively. We can have this kitchen or this kitchen. You can upgrade to um, you know granite work surfaces. Or we can downgrade to, to to laminate, and we can see the cost uh, uh, the, the cost effect. The main contractor is. Particularly good at this, quite often, if you get the right one, um, and you'll quite often do this in the in the tendering phase as well. So they're all really keen uh, to drive value in. They might be able to source kitchens elsewhere. They might be doing a 40, 40 new build housing estate, uh, you know, a few miles away, and might be able to get the better economies of scale and bring additional procurement um, opportunity that that your design team probably weren't aware of. Yeah, and you know this is this is the time we're talking about <clears throat> to get any any additional things in as well. So um, I know very recently we were just looking at um, some housing layouts. It had come out from our designers. You know, we had a good look over them, and we thought, okay, so it was, there was a couple of attached garages, detached garages, and the garages themselves just had the up and over door. You know, in a garage, and we, we thought, well, it would be sensible. You know, and open up the options of these properties just to put maybe a personnel door in, you know, in the side. And then that opens up all sorts of things. You could put a small little utility or something at the end of the garage and those sorts of things. So we just put it in. That's the time to get it in because if you've, you've frozen on the design, you know, the contract is locked in, you're in contract, and you say, oh, by the way, would you mind uh, putting some extra doors in? <laughs> that becomes a variation. Okay. And unfortunately, the reality of the situation is if you, uh, you know, I mean, obviously the QS is there to, to keep you safe in this scenario, but 
I would suggest to everybody on the call that you'll probably pay a little bit more if you do it after the event opposed to before the event. Um, before their event, they're in that competitive environment so that, you know, they're bidding for the work, they've got to keep the cost down. And you might even get it in the cost opposed to when it's on the other side of the fence. You know, they're the only uh, horse in town, as it were. And, you know, it could be it could be a situation, it could be double potentially. So definitely get consideration, have time for the drawings, just have a, have a look over them. If there's anything, you know, obvious that where you would like things changing, just do it before you get into contract, for sure. And, um, you know, that way you can you can be assured you're probably getting the best value, you know, for the for the outturn. But uh, really, really important not to grow huge variation of cows because that can really skew your budget, you know, going forward. And uh, it's very difficult once you've got to that, that position. Yeah, it's a, a stroke of a pen on a drawing pre-contract cost nothing it really doesn't cost anything as you say changing the doorway location um once you're in contract or certainly once things are being built as well the costs just start to really ramp up um you will have variations they are a a, a fact of life you know things do happen um and being reasonable under contract do make sure you gather up those variations on a regular basis. Try and get them pre-approved before the works are done. Keep on top of it. What you don't, don't want is a, a growing a, a variation account that is, is not being agreed. Cash flow starts to impact the builder. Um, uh, things, you know, uh, mm. you know uh, people start getting a, a bit afraid of nerves and um it, the day you start to get into you know mm. contractor dispute and uh, then you're into dispute resolution you don't want to go down there so just keep on top of it and that, unfortunately most people like to avoid conflict mm. don't like to talk about those type of things and maybe we'll do a separate session in the future nigel on on dispute resolution how to avoid it you know, the contract, you want to sign the contract and nobody really wants to go to the contract. But what the contract does do, and this is why it should never really gather dust, it, it should provide a very clear method, methodologic, methodology. One of those. Uh, on, <laughs> it's still early. Uh, on on how, to, um, uh, how to engage change control, because this is all about risk. So use it, embrace it, have it as part of your weekly and monthly meetings, keep on top of it. And again, another great reason having a brilliant uh, QS as part of your, your team. So that's a, a quick review of the pros and cons and things you need to be aware of in design and build, in uh, a traditional uh, procurement selection, contract design portion, how you take contractor selection, choosing the right contractor for the right level of procurement. So procurement selection is part of your strategic decision-making, and it happens very early in the process. Um, lots of top tips for you, and um, we'll be covering this in extensive detail uh, with our Equa Mentorship Group. If you're interested in Equa Mentorship, visit our website, www.equaacademy.com co.uk and just book a complimentary call i'll have half an hour on the phone with you and see if equi mentorship is right what have you got to lose and i might even be able to answer a few of your questions as well so nigel that's procurement another indeed. great session there indeed indeed mark yeah and uh, 
yeah, I hope everybody listening, you know, got something out of that. It's uh, it's it's quite a deep uh, subject, but um, you know, if you get it right, you know that that creates that's your uh, risk assurance, isn't it? Really, in your project from a commercial point of view, so really, really important. So, enjoy the session. Brilliant. Okay, until next week, everybody, have a fantastic week. You take care, and don't forget to subscribe to Property Portfolio Podcast and visit ecroacademy.co.uk. Have a fantastic week ahead, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And as they say in show business, that's a wrap. Well, I truly hope you enjoyed this episode and remember to subscribe and click on the bell to stay tuned for the next installment. And remember, as I always say, leave at least one person today with the impression of increase. That means have them leaving you feeling better off having spent time with you than not. And hopefully that's exactly what I've done with you today.